And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who provides, and we thank you that you care for us. We thank you that, Lord, you never uh, leave nor forsake us. And Lord, I would just pray, God, as uh, there are several in our body who are struggling with work right now and looking for jobs or needing, um, Lord, a better job, or I uh, pray, God, that you would uh, provide for them. May you work mightily in their lives, even this week, God, to encourage them by providing. And Lord, we know that, uh, as David said, none of your descendants are left to beg for bread, that you care for, for your children. I pray, Lord, you would comfort and encourage those who are are looking for that provision. Pray too, Lord, for our time now as we look to your word that your spirit would be at work within us. Lord, we know your word is powerful and I pray, God, that it would be you speaking this morning, that it would be your words that we hear and, Lord, that you would do your work in us so that we can honor you and please you and be glorifying you in this earth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ed, Ed mentioned the the prayer sheet earlier, and it's been encouraging to see more of you uh, putting in your requests and more of you uh, taking those sheets and praying for one another. And, and as I go through those requests uh, each week, you know, I'm struck by just how many significant trials and difficulties we have here in our own body, how many of you are going through uh, very difficult times and you know, suffering you know, serious health issues or someone in your family that's going through that or, or people losing their homes or looking for work as it just prayed for or the, or the burden of having friends or family who don't know the Lord. Many of you have, may have be going through conflict in your marriage or struggling with others or dealing with the loss of someone you cared about or just the burden of living in this sinful world. It's not easy. It brings trials and hardships. And people in Scripture, they face the same things that you and I face. People in the Word of God carried the same burdens as they tried to make life work in the midst of of death and conflict and frailty and sin. There are people in the Bible that had bad marriages. People in Scripture who had wayward children, who had harsh bosses, poor parents. People in the Bible who lost their jobs, who encountered conflict, who faced death. Then there are the examples of those who, in the midst of even the most difficult of trials, seem to to rise above them and still have peace and and comfort and be able to endure when those trials came. I think of Hannah, childless Hannah, who was burdened with the desire to have a child and not only carrying that burden, but also having the other wife taunting her constantly, year after year. It says sometimes she got so, so discouraged that she would uh, uh, just be overwhelmed with discouragement and not even eat. And then one day she goes to the temple and it says there she pours out her soul before the Lord, gives her burden to him. And the text says in First Samuel 1 that she went away no longer sad. I think of those three young men standing before probably one of the greatest kings in all of history, King Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to bow to his golden statue and they're, they're standing before this king and listen to what they said to him. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And incredibly, then they said this, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship the golden image that you've set up. I think of Joseph, who was, his brothers wanted to initially murder him. But they ended up selling him into slavery, right? And then he's falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, forgotten. 
Imagine how he must have felt. Years of his life lost just because of jealous brothers and a jilted woman. And yet when he had the opportunity for revenge, when he had the opportunity to take out his bitterness upon his brothers, what did he tell them? Brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And who can forget Job? Probably suffered more than any other human. In fact, he lost everything, absolutely everything. His children, his home, his business, his dignity, his reputation, his health. It was all taken from him. And right in the midst of the unthinkable, you remember what he said, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul, too, he went through many struggles, many trials. After he got saved, he spent the rest of the 30 plus years of his life going through hardships, persecution, betrayal, suffering, conflict, sickness, loss of friends, lack of sleep, hunger. And yet, like Hannah and Joseph and Job and many others in Scripture that we see, he was able to rest in the sovereign hand of God. The question is, how? How could Paul and these others be able to seemingly rise above their struggles? How could they do that? Well, the answer to that question is found in our text this morning from Paul's own example in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to learn from his example how to find rest in the sovereign hand of God, even in the midst of trials. Here in Ephesians 3, Paul had intended to, to pray for the Ephesians But before he gets to his prayer, there's something else that comes to his mind. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3, and I would ask you to please stand in honor of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you to not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if we remember back in chapter 1, when Paul had expressed and described the amazing salvation offered to us by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and after disclosing those truths, he was moved to pray. In Ephesians 1.15, he describes that prayer that he gives for the Ephesians that they would understand and grasp and be able to comprehend all that he had described in chapter 1. Well, here again, Paul's moved in the same direction. He just expressed in chapter 2 how lost these Gentiles were and how far away from God they were, being dead in sin, being caught up in the the lust of the flesh, 
And the fact that they were separate from God, without hope, they were even further distant from the Lord than those of Israel. And after Paul describes this and then describes the amazing transformation that is brought about in the gospel and how he brought Jew and Gentile together in one body, he can't help but want to pray again for them that they would grasp and understand these amazing truths. But, but before he gets to that prayer, as, as we approach chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, for this reason, hearkening back to that, uh, the things that he said in chapter 2. But before getting to his prayer, which we see down in verse 14, when he repeats for this reason and then says, I bowed my knees before the Father, he seems to get sidetracked. In between verses 1 and 14, there's this rabbit trail, it appears, where Paul is talking about something else, not related or not part of his prayer. But notice, we can see why he does this by looking at verses 1 and, and verse 13. Because one may ask, well, did he overlook something? Was there something that Paul said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you this. Or is he just easily distracted, like a number of professors I had in college? They, we could get them on a rabbit trail like nothing. But that wasn't the case here with Paul. He did have a purpose. He did have a reason. And, and we can see that if you look at the last phrase in verse 1 and look at what he says in verse 13. Just before his rabbit trail, he describes himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in verse 13, he says, Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. And notice, both of those statements have two parallels. One is they both describe Paul's circumstance. One that he's in prison, the other is tribulation. And secondly, that that circumstance is on account of or on behalf of the ones he's writing to, the Ephesians. But why bring these things up? Why go on this rabbit trail? How does it fit into the letter? What Paul says in verse 13 lets us know what prompted Paul to write to the Ephesians in the first place. So to, to answer that question, we need to again go back like we did in the first week when we looked at the introduction to this letter and remember Paul's history with these people. Remember his relationship with them. Right? He'd spent three years with the Ephesians, teaching them, encouraging them, sharing the scriptures with them. In fact, more time he spent there than anywhere else as recorded in the book of Acts. And he talks about his time there. And remember, if, if you remember, he got run out of town, right, by the idle tradesmen. There was a great um, a business there in worship of Artemis. And Paul's uh, uh, presence there as sharing of the gospel was, was causing people to turn away from that religion and turn to God. And there was guys that weren't too happy about that. So they ran him out of town. And then about a year or less later, Paul was able to spend a brief amount of time with the elders at the church of Ephesus. He didn't go back to Ephesus, but he was able to set up a meeting with them at Miletus. And it's there that he had told the Ephesian elders that this was it. If you remember the words that he spoke to them in Acts 20, let me read a few of them to you. Paul said to them, and now behold, bound by the spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. And then there was the tearful farewell. These men were discouraged at what they heard from Paul. Paul was saying, you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem, and just like every place else, God tells me that the struggles and afflictions await me there. And you know what? I'm ready to die, if that's what God's will is. And then he says, 
I'm not going to see you again. They were discouraged by that. They were concerned about that. And then, just as Paul had said, after that tearful farewell, he found his way to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he was falsely, uh, he was arrested under false charges. He was thrown into prison because they was, they accused him of preaching against the law and bringing Gentiles into the restricted area in the temple. And so Paul spends two years in the prison in Caesarea. And then he's moved from there to Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. And when word of this gets to the Ephesians, what are they going to be thinking? Remember what Paul told us a few years ago? The last time we saw him? This is it. Paul's done for. He's in prison. He's going to be killed. So they were discouraged. And I think they felt a little bit of responsibility for that because they knew that the reason Paul was in prison, the reason he was suffering, was because of them. He was bringing the gospel to Gentiles. And I think these Ephesians may have even felt a little more guilt because it says in Acts 21 that when uh, he was being accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area where they weren't allowed, and one of the guys that was with him that they saw and accused him of bringing into that area was Trophimus, an Ephesian. You remember, we knew that Trophimus guy. and Paul was thrown in prison because they said he brought him into the temple. So I think they felt a sense of guilt over that as well and discouragement. And, and so when Paul says in three one that he's a prisoner of Christ for their sake, something triggers in his mind. He remembers the fact that they are concerned for him. It reminds him of his imprisonment was a means of them being anxious, potentially fretting, being downtrodden, depressed at his situation. And so he tells them in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Now, he's not saying that because, you know, some macho thing. Hey, I can handle it, guys. Don't worry about it. I got this thing covered. And he's not saying it because he is trying to blow it off. Hey, you know, it's, it's really no big deal. I, I go through this all the time. And that's not the point. Paul here is trying to, and he's using this situation, his current circumstance, because he wants the Ephesians to see the big picture. He wants them to understand something very important and vital in the midst of going through struggle and hardship. He wants them to see that actually what is happening is a good thing. It's a sign that God is at work. And I want you to think about this a minute. Here's a guy, all the things that, that Paul has gone through. Here's a guy, he's got a passion to spread the gospel, right? He's got a passion to establish churches, to carry out what God had called him to do. And here he is chained to a Roman guard, going on probably four years now. He's restricted from visiting the, the churches that he's helped to start. He's not able to go out into the, into the peoples and proclaim the gospel. He's been confined to quarters. Imagine how frustrating that might be for a guy like that. And that Paul had, you know, this was nothing new for him. He'd done time before. This wasn't the first time he was in prison. This isn't the first hardship that he went through. Right? You remember 2 Corinthians 11. He articulates all the different things that, that Paul had gone through. He talks about suffering countless beatings, being stoned almost to death. How Paul was shipwrecked and mugged, suffered death threats. Had many sleepless nights. He often went without food and water, he said. He often lacked clothing and, and lacked the proper shelter. His name was dragged through the mud. He was betrayed. He was taunted. He was abandoned. And yet that same guy could say not only, hey, it's okay. 
But but he's also turning it around and saying, hey, and don't don't be discouraged yourselves. Don't worry about me. Don't be anxious. Paul wasn't only at peace with his own circumstances. He was trying to help others to be at peace with him, too. He says in Philippians, another letter that he wrote during the same imprisonment. He told them, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Now, how does this work? How does a guy who's gone through all of those things and, and didn't see him let up? It wasn't like God gave him a few trials and then say, OK, you're good. No more for the rest of your life. He suffered for 30 plus years after coming to Christ. How is it that a guy not only could endure that, not only could have peace in the midst of that, but here he could say, I rejoice in these trials. I rejoice in being poured out for you. I mean, either Paul was on something or he realized an important truth about God. It is the latter, of course. And we're going to talk about that. Because the answer to how Paul could, could have that kind of attitude and even have joy in the midst of, of the most difficult of situations is found in verses 2 to 12 here in chapter 3. Paul describes in this section where he ends with, therefore I ask you not to lose heart, that therefore points us back to something. Paul's saying there's some things here I want you to understand and be reminded of and know so that you would not lose heart. In the midst of my circumstances, in the midst of my trials. And it is from these verses that we will see Paul's example here of five truths to help you find rest in the sovereign hand of God, even in the midst of trials. And the first truth that Paul points to is given in verses 2 through 9, and that is to know God's plan for you. The very first thing that that Paul says in verse 2 is he draws attention to the fact that God had a plan for him. He says, if indeed you have heard, or, or the, the Greek there is really emphatic, since you have surely heard of my, uh, the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me. And then he talks about in verse 7, he alludes to God's plan for him when he said, of which I was made a minister or a servant, again in reference to the gospel. And then in verse 8 he says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And again in verse 9 he says that he was appointed to explain the plan, God's plan in history. Paul here several times is pointing them to the fact that he understood he was appointed to a mission. He was giving a, a plan, a task by God to carry out. And he, he came to know that mission when he got saved on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, right? Remember that story when he, he was going to Damascus, ready to persecute more believers, and all of a sudden, somebody shows up on the scene, Right? Paul, Paul, he's like, what? who is this? And it's neat to hear how he describes this uh, circumstance, this situation when he met Jesus and when he's describing it to King Agrippa in Acts 26. There he says that when Jesus appeared to him, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion, the dominion of Satan to God. 
See, Paul here was commissioned by Jesus, right? He was commissioned to bring the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. And that's what got him thrown into the pokey. It's because he was carrying out that mission, that plan that God had given him. And that's why he describes himself in Ephesians 3.1 as a prisoner of Christ. You know, he was technically a prisoner of Rome, right? He was held by the Romans. But Paul didn't see it that way. He said, I'm a, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm carrying out his mission. It is he who I'm serving. He knew it was God's plan for him. He knew it was God's plan for him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And as a result of that, he would suffer. Paul was able to find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. He was able to find rest in the sovereign hand of God because he remembered God had a plan for him. And that's what we need to do in the face of trials. Know that God has a plan for you as well. I mean, what are you here for? What is the purpose that God has in your life? These are important questions to answer. A lot of times we just look at life as to survive and exist. It's so easy to get discouraged when we fail to remember that, as with Paul, God has a plan for you as well. I know we might be saying, well, I haven't been given a direct message from Jesus. In fact, when I got saved, it was quiet around me. When I got saved, I was on a street corner in Santa Monica sniffing bus fumes. There was no great light. There was no voice from heaven, at least not an audible one. So I haven't been, I'm just trying to keep the bills paid, you know, uh, be involved at church and keep from sinning the best I can. But listen, Christian, God has given you a mission. He has given you a purpose. He has given you a plan. Even if you haven't heard it audibly or been blinded by the Lord Jesus, he's given you a plan. First Peter 2, 9 says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know, that sure sounds like a commission to me. Chosen as his people in order to proclaim his excellencies, in order to preach his virtues, in order to uh, call to mind those around us of God's praiseworthy character. Or Matthew 28, when Jesus uh, spoke to the disciples, he gave a commission. We call it a commission, the great commission to the church, right? And he said, what? Make disciples. And he didn't just mean those guys. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said this. You know this first. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. These are all mission statements, and there's many more like them in the, in the scriptures. You, you see, you, you do have a mission. Your mission is to glorify God in the role that he's given you as a husband or a wife, as a parent, a child, an employee, a neighbor, a citizen, a student, a church member. Every believer has been commissioned by God, just like Paul. In fact, Ephesians 6, 6, Paul says of us, we're all slaves of Christ. We're all his servants. We have a purpose in this life. You have a purpose in this life to honor God in whatever circumstance you're in, whatever place he has has you at, whatever role that you have, whatever situation you're going through. God has a plan for you. You know, yesterday we had the the first annual West Stone and Karen Van Trees chili cook-off. I got to be one of the judges. 
I'm still <clears throat> feeling it a little bit. <clears throat> By the way, is Carol in here? Carol, where are you? Carol Holiday cooked a mean batch of chili. So if you ever want something good and hot, t- give Carol a call. It was great. But if there are two people that understood what we're talking about here this morning, Wes and Karen, if there are two people that, that realized that, it's those two. They went through tremendous suffering and ordeal before they died. Their physical suffering lasted not just for weeks or months, but years. But they recognized something. They recognized God had a plan for them. I I remember so many times talking with Karen as she would describe the day she had going through chemo and and she's sharing the gospel with a person next to her who was also going through chemotherapy but had no hope. And she there, this woman who was suffering, was preaching to those around her. Or Wes, how many, many, many nights and days he spent in the hospital. And every time you go to see him, he was declaring God's praise. He was proclaiming the excellencies of of the one who called him out of darkness. Whether you were saved or not, you were going to hear about God if you went to see Wes. He was an amazing encouragement. Both of them were. And these two saints were able to endure much suffering because their focus wasn't on the suffering, but was on God's plan and purpose for them. Yeah, they had some hard days, believe me. But they continued to remind themselves that they were on a mission that God had a plan for them. And they're examples to us when, when we are under the weight of trial, when we have life's ordeals, that we need to remind ourselves of why we're here and what God has called us to do. You know, He didn't pull us all out of this earth when, when He saved us. We wish we did. We wish He did. But He kept us here. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, that's because He has a plan for you. That's because there's purpose in why you're here. Whether your trial is from persecution or or something else, you need to remember you're to be a godly testimony to those around you, to honor Christ in your home, to honor Him in your work and in your community. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. This place needs light. This planet needs to see. We were all in darkness. The kingdom and dominion of Satan. And God has saved us to be flashlights. He has saved us to show the light upon the glory of the cross. We have a mission. You see, there's a bigger picture. It extends beyond you and your circumstances. There's more here than just trying to get through life. And if you focus solely on your trial... You can lose sight of God's plan or how He wants to use you even in the midst of that trial. As you dwell on God's purpose for you, as you dwell on His plan for your life, you will find rest in His sovereign hand. Know God's plan for you. Secondly, Paul expresses another truth and that is to know God's grace upon you. We see that in verses 7 and 8 in particular. Paul says in verse 7, he was made a servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him. Notice those three words, gift, grace, and given. It's an emphasis here. And again, in verse 8, he repeats it. To me, this grace was given. And here again, we see the grand theme of Ephesians, grace. 
And Paul recognized that grace, not only in his own conversion, not only in taking him from the greatest enemy of the gospel to its greatest proponent, but he also expresses here the grace that God gave him to carry out the mission that God put him on. Grace was given to proclaim, to preach this message. And notice at the end of verse 7, he says the gift of God's grace was given according to the working or the exercise of his power. Again, another key theme in Ephesians, back in chapter 1, verse 19. Remember where Paul said there that, that God has put within his children and believers the surpassing greatness of his power. Or in chapter 2, verses 7 to 10, he tells us of the grace at work in us, not only to save us, but to sanctify us. And Paul here recognizes that that same grace is in his own life. That same grace is available to him to carry out the mission for which God had called him. It wasn't like God said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Check back with me in a few years and we'll see how it's going. No, Paul says here, God empowered me to carry out this mission. There's a a power that God is exercising within me in order to do this because there's no way I could do this on my own. I was having a good old time just persecuting believers. I was fine with being the chief Pharisee and everybody giving me all these accolades and, and people wanting to spend time with me and, you know, signing, I, get, I gave out a lot of autographs. It's one of the great Pharisees of my time. Paul was having a good old life until Jesus got him and gave him a mission. And he gave him the grace and the power to carry out that mission. Whatever happens, whatever happens, believer, God is at work in you. He will give you the grace to carry it out, even in the midst of the great struggles that might come as part of his plan. We often fail because we try to gut things out on our own when we're going through trials. We try to do it in our own strength. But Paul here, he's not he's not pointing to himself saying, hey, don't sweat it. Don't worry about stuff. I got this handled. I'm I'm the great apostle Paul of the Gentiles. Don't be worried about me. That, That wasn't his tone at all. It's actually quite the opposite. Paul said, hey, it's God who gave me this purpose and it's God is going to be with me the whole way through and it's God that's going to empower me to do this thing. No matter what comes, he will give me the strength, whether bad times are good, whether in trials or in peace, whether in suffering or in blessing. And brothers and sisters, you can rest too in the sovereign hand of God, even in the greatest of trials, as you remind yourself that it is in God's gracious hand that you rest. It's His power that's at work in you. It is He that will help you endure. It is Him that will give you peace. You know, James 1-2 is one of those passages in the Bible that are, you know, kind of, I think, the you got to be kidding me texts. You know, where it says there, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And you're going, what? I get maybe Lord enduring, but actually rejoicing? How is that possible? How does that work? Michael Sattler was convicted by uh, the Catholic Church in 1527 as a heretic. There were three charges laid against him. The first was that he denied infant baptism could save you. The second charge against him was the fact that he believed the communion was a memorial remembrance of Christ's death and that it wasn't his actual physical body and blood. And the third charge was that he married after he had taken monastic vows. 
And the punishment for his crime was that he was to have his tongue cut out, then to be tied to a wagon and have tongs pull out his flesh, and then to be thrown in a fire to burn to death. And in their graciousness, they gave him three days to think about it. Well, Michael Sattler faced that day. And apparently they didn't cut his tongue out completely because people later reported they could hear him praying for his executioners. And even as he was tied to the ladder, ready to be dumped within the flames, he was proclaiming to those around him to repent and to put their faith in Christ. And then as he was thrust in the fire and, and was there for a time and long enough for the cords to be burned off of his body that were tying him to the, to the ladder, he, he raised up his arm with two fingers as a sign to fellow brothers and sisters that, hey, God's grace is sufficient. I can endure this because of him. It was a sign to those around him that God is with me. And those two fingers are still up today. Because God's grace hasn't abandoned us. It didn't abandon Paul. That's how he could face the trials and struggles he had. And that same grace is available to you. Picture Michael's hands. Picture those two fingers directed to you. It wasn't just to those who were around the fire that day, but for all of us to be reminded that God's grace is is sufficient. He will give you the grace to live for Him no matter what comes. No matter what you face, God is at work in you. So rest in His sovereign hand. Know that His grace is upon you. Remind yourself of His plan for you. And thirdly, know that God's glory is displayed through you. Look back at verse 10 where Paul says, The grace to proclaim the gospel was given so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. You see, Paul could endure trials and he could even find joy in them because he saw the purpose for which God had them. He saw the end to which God was pointing to. Through the church, Paul says here, through his gospel proclamation as God was saving and establishing the church of Jesus Christ, God would be glorified as his manifold or multifaceted or many varied wisdom would be evident to all. And it's interesting to note here the audience. He didn't say to all people. He talked about here, it will be evident to more than just human beings. It will be evident to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. We've met these guys before these are the angelic hosts both good and evil both demons and angels all spirit beings that are in the heavenlies what's interesting here is is paul's describing the situation that as the church was established as as the church was 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 birthed and as the church grows it is putting on full display something about god to which the angels are observing just think about it that Imagine yourself watching as God would bring a a diverse group of people like us into this living organism that he would bring young and old, Jew and Gentile, male and female, married and single, all within one body from different backgrounds and, and different histories and different situations and make us one. And you got the angels up there going, whoa, how did you do that? This is amazing how God could could do this because they've been watching history. Right? Their history channel's always on. Right? And they're seeing God creating the world, right? It says in Job 38, uh, I think it's 38, talks about the angels there singing for joy as God's laying the foundation of the earth. 
and they see God make this grand creation, make man in his image, the only creature in creation in all the universe that's in the image of God. And then watching man rebel against God, watching Satan rebel. And then seeing human history, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and all Israel's rebellion, all these things they're observing and watching through history. And then to see God send his own son to be tortured and rejected, murdered. And they're watching all of this. And then they see the the church rise up out of the ashes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine what they're thinking. Because those angels are watching. First Peter 2 talks about that. As Peter said that the Old Testament prophets were uh, disclosing the, uh, the truths of God. And it says there the angels long to look and see how God would fulfill those prophecies. Or in Luke 15.10. What are the angels doing when a sinner repents? Rejoicing. They're watching. The good angels anyway are rejoicing. But all the angelic hosts are watching. You see, there's more here than just us. It isn't all about you and me. We're not the only audience God is interested in seeing, having see his glory. The angelic hosts, and Paul says here that these are the ones that as the church is brought together, they are the ones seeing his incredible intelligence, his incredible wisdom, his incredible understanding. And to think that, that you and I, as we walk through life, we could be used as part of that display of God's wisdom. That even the angels, even the angels are learning more about God because of you. Usually through our mistakes and our sins. But hey, they're learning. But then they see the amazing triumphs like Michael Sattler. And they're blown away. How God could do that. How he could do that. And this, I'm saying all this because it tells me one thing. It tells me there's a point to your life. It tells me that there's a reason for the circumstances you're in. You are not simply a, a blip on the screen. You're not an invisible dot on the page. What happens to you and what you do are significant. As you allow God to work in your life, God's wisdom is magnified. And you know what? You affect more than just angels. Because we do know there, there is a broader audience as well, right? Other humans on this earth are watching too. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Could there be a more significant purpose? Think about that. That, that somebody else would glorify God because of what they see you do. That's amazing. You have the potential through God's grace working in your life. You have the potential to move another person to give God glory. You know, we who are imperfect, selfish, sinful, rebellious, God can use, transform, and work through to cause others to glorify Him. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You can have an impact in someone's life to such an extent that they would bow the knee to Christ. People notice. And you know when they notice most? 
is when you're going through trials, when you're going through struggles. I remember a time in, in our lives, we had several different trials going on. I remember my boss, who wasn't a believer at the time, saying, boy, God's sure kicking you around. But see, he was watching. I remember a family member who didn't know the Lord, who uh, was very hostile to the gospel for, uh, for a number of years. I remember that family member asking my wife and I, how are you coping with all this? How are you handling what's going on in your life? And that opened the door for conversation. It was over an hour long where we talked about God's goodness. We talked about His sovereignty. We talked about trusting in Him. It was the most detailed conversation we'd ever had with that person. And God opened that door. And I'm not pointing to me. But just like Paul, God at work in you can cause those doors to open. And you can be used of Him to draw someone to Christ. That they'll be in heaven shaking your hand. Thanking you for allowing God to work through you. There are some people in my life that I'll be shaking their hand profusely. Because God used them. You, you have the same ability through God's grace. What nobler purpose could there be in life than to be used of God for others to honor and esteem Him? That God's marvelous attributes would be better known, would be better understood on account of you. That angels would know more about God's character because of you. They don't know everything. They're not infinite. They're learning too. And they're being more and more amazed every day as they watch God work in His church. You will rest in the sovereign hand of God during the most difficult of trials if you remind yourself that God's glory is being displayed through you, that God has a plan for you, and that God's grace is upon you. And fourthly, you'll find that rest if you remind yourself of God's sovereignty over you. In encouraging the Ephesians not to be discouraged about his trials, Paul tells them in verse 11, he says there, this was in accordance, that is the, the carrying out of his mission to preach the gospel and then disclose the mystery of the church, that this was all in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God has had a plan all from eternity. And that plan was being carried out. God hasn't been scrambling all through history trying to roll with the punches and figuring out what to do next because we keep messing up His plans. God's not fretting. He's not surprised by any events. He hasn't changed His plans from eternity past. When Satan rebelled against God, he didn't say, Oh, great, my most powerful angel has turned against me. What am I going to do now? You know, when Adam sinned in the garden, God didn't say, Oh, no! My creation's ruined. My plan's all messed up. When the demons tried to thwart God's plan to send a deliverer by corrupting the human race, God did not throw up his hands and give up. He found Noah and had him build an ark. When Israel rebelled against God time and time again, God didn't go back on his promises. He stuck to his word. And when God's own son was nailed upon a cross, God didn't become despondent and say, oh, they killed my son, what am I going to do now? When the early church was persecuted mercilessly, and the church has gone through some periods of, of terrible persecution, especially in the early church, and when that persecution was happening, God wasn't worried about how the gospel would spread. 
And when Jew and Gentile struggled to be one in one body together, God wasn't anxious about whether his plan would work. He wasn't going, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't didn't foresee this one. These guys aren't getting along very well. God has not fretted. And as this world continues to rebel against him, God is not worried about whether or not he's going to rule one day. It's all been his plan from eternity past. And the church is the the grand exclamation point on that plan. God's redemptive plan in history hasn't changed and hasn't been thwarted. We aren't plan B. His eternal purpose to display his glory through redeemed sinners, through the blood of his son, to establish his church as one body, that has not changed. Ever since God created man, Satan has tried to spoil his plan. Right. And and every time he's failed, all of God's enemies have failed. God's eternal purpose has been carried out in Christ. And that is true not only in bringing the gospel, that is true not only in establishing the church, the church, but his sovereignty is over everything. Right. Paul said this back in Ephesians 111. You know, this verse. God works all things after the counsel of his will. You know, Romans 828, too. Right. God causes all things. Things to work together for good. God causes all things. Isaiah 46, 9, God says this, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, these things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm 135, 5, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And when you're going through hardships, when you're going through trials, when you're going through ongoing health issues, a struggling marriage, wayward kids, persecution, financial struggles, when you're tested by just the grind of trying to live life in a sin-cursed world in these bodies of flesh, that is a burden. When that's happening, you need to bring to your mind and remind yourself that God is sovereign, that He is in control. And I know we hear that a lot. I know it from this pulpit. Sovereignty is probably one of the most common words used. But it's easy to be tempted to think, well, how is it helpful to me now? I mean, the situation I'm in, it hurts. This is a struggle. I'm burdened. How is knowing God is sovereign going to bring me comfort? Yes, I know it's true. I've had 14 people tell me that this week. But how is that a comfort to me now? Well, let me ask you this. Just think if he wasn't sovereign. Just think if God wasn't in control of all things. What if you were at the mercy of natural forces or Satan? What if you were at the mercy of other people? What if God was scrambling, trying to figure out how to, how to catch up to things, how to, how to solve situations and problems? What if he wasn't in control? Would that be more comforting? Not at all. He is in control. There is an infinite, all-wise, all-good all-knowing God, all-powerful God, who is in control of all things. And we can't remind ourselves of that truth enough. That is how you find rest in His hands. 
to be reminded that they are sovereign hands. That nothing is slipping through his fingers. God is overseeing all things. He has a plan for you. His grace is upon you. His glory is displayed through you. And he is sovereign over you and over your circumstances. And there's a fifth truth. And finally, the fifth truth to help us rest in the sovereign hand of God in the midst of trials. And that is to know that he is available to you. It's interesting to look at the last thing Paul says to them in verse 12 before telling them not to be discouraged. The last thing he says is this, in whom we have boldness and confident access in him. That reminds us back in chapter 2, verse 18, when Paul said there that we have through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And there in that context, he was talking about that Jesus had, had brought peace, peace among Jew and Gentile and peace with God. And that based on that, we could now approach the throne of grace, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend. And here Paul brings it up again that we have access to the Father in the context of finding comfort in the midst of trial. No matter what is going on, we can be assured that we have an audience with the all-sovereign God. And, And Paul emphasizes that assurance with three words here, boldness, access, and confidence. He says boldness here. And that, the idea there is openness or without constraints. The word means freedom of access. Basically, the picture is the door is open for you to go in. It's an invitation to come before an all-powerful king. He mentions access there. And that word carries the idea of freedom of approach. The word boldness is freedom of access. The second word access in the Greek is the more idea of freedom of approach. Not only is the door open to you, but you are welcome. You're encouraged to come. You're encouraged to approach the throne. And thirdly, Paul says that we have this freedom of access. We have this freedom of approach in confidence. The picture Paul's giving here is you can have full and complete assurance that you're welcome before God at any time that you are invited into his presence, that the door is open, that you can enter and that you're accepted. You can rest in the sovereign hand of God. Listen, because you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, He will hear. There can be no doubt or uncertainty at all that God will listen. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Same word there to the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Be assured, brothers and sisters, God is approachable. And Paul keeps coming back to this point that we can go to God, especially when we're struggling. We can go to Him. And that this assurance that Paul is trying to communicate here, this isn't a flippancy or a, or a proud idea. You know, we're not just rushing into God's presence because we, well, I deserve to be here. But the attitude is one of humility and gratitude, right? We boldly enter not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of what Jesus has done and, what, and who he is. But Satan, you know what? He would much rather have you not do that. He'd much rather have you not go to God. 
He would much ha- rather have you fret and, and be anxious in your trial. He'd much rather have you doubt that, oh, God's not even going to listen to you. He doesn't even care. He's too busy. And by the way, uh, you know, he didn't want you to think to question your own worthiness to be there. Right? That how can you ask God for anything? How can you even think to even go in his presence? See, he'd rather just have you stuck in your trial and in your struggle, trying to figure it out and make life work on your own. That's when people turn to things like drugs and alcohol or, or sex or entertainment or all these things. Rather than go to the one, the only one who can truly help, who can truly bring comfort, who can truly bring rest. And God says, you are welcome. You have access. Boldly come before me. You're free to come into my door anytime. This welcome access is the very thing Christ died to make happen. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, right? There were a few things happened at that moment, right? You remember the Matthew 27 talks about the earth shaking. There was an earthquake and the rock split. And then Matthew describes that these dead saints coming out of the grave and then walking back into Jerusalem. And all that happened at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit. And as incredible as those things are, there was one other more extraordinary event that took place at that moment in the temple. What was it? The veil was torn, it says, from top to bottom. And God didn't do that for some dramatic flare, like, hey, check this out. Right? That wasn't the point at all. God had torn that veil for a specific purpose. And with the sound of ripping cloth, God sent all of us a message. You are welcome. Because before that cloth separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of humanity. And only the priest could go in there one time during the year to offer sacrifice for our sins. But God said, that is over. You have free access to me because of what just happened on that cross to my son. You are welcome in my presence. I want you here. God saying that. He's always available to us. And that's why we can rest in his sovereign hand. But I'm compelled to say that he's not available to everyone here. That there are some here that if you tried to pray to God, he would not hear. The door is not open to you. That's because, as verse 12 indicates, this access to God is conditional. God has conditions upon those who he will welcome in his presence. He says here in verse 12, in whom, that is in Christ, and through faith in him, through faith in Jesus. Those are the conditions in which we have access to the Father. It is only through Christ. You can't go to God through a priest. You can't go to him through Mary or some pastor or some other religious person. None of them are mentioned here. It's only in Christ that we have access to the Father. It is only in Jesus that we can approach the throne. It is only through Christ that he will have our prayers, that God will listen to our prayers. Because as we go into that throne room, who is it that's holding open the door for us? It's our Lord Jesus. And who is it? The only one who has a key to that door that's been drenched in his blood is Christ. First Peter 2 5 says, or First Timothy 2 5, excuse me, says, There is one God and one mediator, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other way. God will only hear the prayers of those who've been given access by the blood of Christ. There aren't many ways to God, right? There's only one. 
There's only one person that can open that door. And it's only through faith in Christ that you can walk through that door. You must place your trust in Him and Him alone. Only Christ can save you. Only the Son of God who died for your sin can forgive you. And He'll lift up that key and open that door as soon as you repent from your sins and place your faith in Christ and be willing to commit your life to Him. And then based on the the act that He performed, the, the death on the cross that He that took place, you'll hear that door unlock and it'll open. And your Father, Heavenly Father, will be there saying, welcome. But it only comes through faith in Christ. You must repent from your sin and believe and be willing to turn your life over to Him. God will do the work. You have to be willing. And then access to God What a remarkable privilege, an incredible gift that he's given through Christ's death on the cross. And if there's anyone to look to as the ultimate example of one who rested in the sovereign hand of God, it is whom? It is our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21 tells us, You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That is a description of resting in God's sovereign hand. Jesus entrusted himself to God's sovereign plan for his life, even though it cost him everything. And Peter here tells us he is our example. He is the one to look to. Hebrews 12, 2 says to tell, it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, for, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider, think about, meditate on him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's that phrase again. We're ending where we started, back in verse 13, where Paul says, don't lose heart. Jesus didn't lose heart because he entrusted himself to the Father. And we, too, need to fix our eyes upon Christ as our example so that we would rest in God's sovereign hand. Remember God's plan for you. Know his grace upon you. Be reminded of his glory through you. Remind yourself of His sovereignty over you and know that He is available to you. Let's pray. Lord, every one of us is burdened by life. We're burdened by our own sin. We're struggling with trials that have come upon us. Lord, we, we need You desperately. We thank you for your word. It reminds us of these truths. That Thank you for Paul's example. And just his encouragement to us. Of knowing your plan for him. Of, of knowing your, his great, your grace upon him. And your powers working through him. Reminding himself of the glory that is displayed through your church. And knowing that we are available. You are available to us. Father, remind us of these things. 
especially those of us perhaps going through very difficult times. God, may your grace overwhelm. And may you not only give endurance, but true joy in the midst of these trials. Lord, I pray if there are any here that don't know you, that don't have access to your throne room, that your word would penetrate, that your spirit would bring conviction, and that, Lord, today would be the day of salvation for them. We would ask all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.